A word of apology to start this week's podcast. We had a little technical difficulty with the intro of Your Money, Your Wealth today, as you'll hear here. Believe it or not, you literally, between what you take out and what you leave to your heirs, you could turn that $3,000 into $50 million, but that would be making a lot less than as in the past because has produced about 5% a year more than the S&P 500. Nah, just kidding. We just want you to stick around to find out which investment nationally known investing authority Paul Merriman says can turn $3,000 into $50 million. He also talks to Joe and Big Al about value versus growth companies, market timing, choosing the right mix of stocks, bonds, and other investments, and which stocks don't even beat treasuries in the long term. Plus, the 10 best and worst places to retire and ways to fund children's education in our newest awkwardly named segment, Catch Jason Thomas CFP by Surprise. Now, with no technical difficulties, here are Joe Anderson CFP and Big Al Clopine CPA. You know, Alan, real estate prices are up again, and uh, you just informed me that the 1031 exchange might be ex-nade. So let's kind of, this is like hot off the press news. Yeah, this is according to Kiplinger uh, tax letter. And here's what they're saying. They're saying uh, uh, that the days of deferring 100% of the gain through like-kind exchanges could be numbered if tax reform does happen. So just as a, as a point of review, if you own a rental property, Okay, let's say it costs $500,000 and you bought it for 100000 years ago. So if you sell it, you have a $400,000 gain uh, that you have to pay tax on. So Plus the, depreciation recapture. Yeah, you bet. So what the IRS says is, you know what? If you buy another rental property for at least 500000 you can transfer that gain into the property that you bought. And that's a 1031 exchange. So you're not necessarily getting out of the tax, but you are deferring it until you sell that second property. And of course, you may know that if you hold that second property your entire life, then it, your heirs, your beneficiaries get a step up in basis. And in that case, actually, nobody pays the tax. So the IRS, of course, uh, or I should say our Congress and Senate, is looking for ways to increase the amount of money they take in taxes because to offset lowering the tax rate. So this is something that may go away. And here's, here's what they're saying, Joe, in this, in this article is that uh, the Republican lawmakers are, are talking about this because it would be, like I said, it would be an offset against lowering tax rates. And even, uh, this was in 2014, the former House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Dave Camp, his their tax proposal got rid of this altogether. And even Obama's plan, uh, they proposed a cap of a million-dollar gain only. That was the Democratic plan. So, in other words, there's support on both sides for at least getting rid of it altogether or at least diminishing its effectiveness. Because sometimes uh, uh, professional real estate investors, they may have an apartment building worth several million dollars, and they sell it and buy another one, and they they pay no tax. Why do you think that ever came about? It was like the Starker exchanges. Yeah, well, because I guess the idea idea was that you... you, You're buying another yeah you're you're just you're exchanging money uh, you're exchanging property with another person right and then and then it's like well no money changed hands so why should you have to pay taxes i think that's why it originally came about the starker exchange basically 
paved the way for what's called a delayed exchange, which is the way most of them are done now. In other words, you sell your property first, and then within 45 days, you have to identify up to three target properties to buy. And six months from close of escrow, you actually have to buy one of those three. And if you do that, and if the money, if you don't get your hands on the money, it has to go to a qualified intermediary, which is not you. If you get your hands on the money, in other words, if a check out of escrow is written to you, it's you've blown the exchange. It doesn't work. Or if you don't identify three properties within 45 days, it's a blown exchange. Or if you don't buy one of those three within six months, you have to pay that gain. I, yeah, how about if I pick another one? No, it has to be the three that I chose to be like the in, the, in the 45 days yeah. that I have? Yeah, exactly, right? So that's the uh, that's the law. And so it's very specific. So what I tell folks, uh, if they want to do an exchange like that, you ought to pretty much know what you're doing when, the, when you're property sells when it, when the close of escrow happens. And I've done it three times myself, and one time happened down to the wire, and that was that was too stressful. But I did make those time frames. But I would say at the moment you have your house in escrow, in other words, you've sold it, your rental property, you've sold it, but it hasn't closed yet, you're looking like crazy, right? And then, and then what I would try to do is buy the property you want to buy within that 45 days so it's really clear. Right, that that's well, yeah, what I you, would suggest. You, you absolutely need to identify. Well, I, you know, but that's that that's tough too because they could sell before you sell yours. And I know, right? Right? Yeah, that, that's why I think it, it pays to have your ducks in a row. Uh, certainly at the time escrow closes, but but that is the law. Escrow closes, the money goes to a third party. Then you have forty five days to identify three properties, and then you have another four and a half months after that, or six months from close of escrow, to actually buy one of those three. Now, there's there's a couple other ways. Like you can identify as many properties as you as you want, as long as you buy. It's like eighty five or ninety percent of those properties. I forget exactly what it is, but there's other ways to identify as well. Uh, like if you sold a gigantic apartment and you want to buy 10 single family homes and you so you can identify I think it's 11 and you have to buy 10 of them something like that Got it. so you can do that too what's a reverse exchange that, that gets trickier because that's when you buy first and you sell second. Uh, and that that's, creates a lot more risk for the, the uh, intermediary, the, the exchange accommodator. So they'll charge you a lot more on that. It's it's not, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. It's better to go in the right order, sell first and buy second. But if you're in a situation where that's not possible, uh, there is, it's called a reverse exchange uh, to where you can actually buy first and sell second. But you still have similar time frames to look out for. There you go. 1031 exchange right off the bat. Just, just getting in some meat. Oh, just, yeah. Because usually it takes us, we're in the second hour before we talk about anything of substance. So today it's like, all right, let's kind of, let's, let's get let's into Let's get this. hot. Yeah. Right now. You know, and I guess talking taxes, uh, you know, Steve Bannon is out, right? And, and he was thinking, he, he had sort of proposed raising the highest tax rate to as high as 44% to offset the cuts for the middle class class. Uh, and what uh, Kiplinger uh, is is saying is that now that he's gone, that's a lot less likely. We'd probably go back to the original idea of taking that 39.6 maximum tax rate and lowering it to, say, 35, 33, you know, the, depending upon what actually happens. But that, that's, I'd say more than likely that that's probably what the Republicans are going to shoot for now. But then the, here's the challenge, as we just said. It's like 
it's trying, they're trying to make it revenue neutral so that we don't go into any more debt than we already are. So then you have to look at getting rid of other tax deductions. One of them, Joe, is the mortgage interest. And there's a lot of talk about that, about not necessarily that it would go away, but they would reduce mm. it rather substantially. Well, what is it now? 1.1 million of, of debt that you can have that you can write off? Yeah. So if, let's say you have a house worth 1.5 million, let's just say. And you, as long as your loan is 1.1 million or lower, you can completely write off that interest. If it's higher than that, then not all of that interest is tax deductible. So they're talking about, I've heard lots of different ranges. The latest one I read is they think they might end up at about 500000 or 600000 something like that, so that any debt above that wouldn't be deductible. Got it. So Got we'll have to see. And, and the article that I read, Joe, talked about... Um, it said that it really didn't affect that many homeowners if they did that. It would it affect the those that have the you know the most money and then supposedly the the best ability to pay for this. That's kind of the idea. In my experience, a lot of times in in California, those that have those kind of mortgage are stretched thin to get into those homes, and they really don't have a lot of room. I don't know about the rest of the country, but I've seen that a lot in California. Well, yeah, the average cost here is a lot more expensive than correct. Uh, you know, most places. Yeah. And then I was thinking to do this more fair, they would have to have different uh, deductible amount depending upon where you live. Like uh, the HUD loans, uh, it depends upon the city that you're living in as to how much you can borrow. Like what, FHA? FHA, loans? yeah. So uh, anyway, but I doubt that they'll do that because that would be a nightmare to administer, but that would be the only way to make it fair. How could you say 600000 is the right number? Then everyone in, let's say, Iowa, for example, could probably deduct their mortgage, and half the people in California couldn't, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. Stay tuned. I, I don't know. It's, it'll be interesting to see what... Um... I mean, there's just a lot of talk now of, of maybe now the focus is on tax reform because there's been a lot of talk with a lot of different things um, that in regards to your overall retirement that would um, be eliminated. Net unrealized depreciation is one. That is where you can take your company stock outside of your 401k plan, move it into a brokerage account. You do pay tax on the basis of that stock. But if you work for that company for 30 years, which we see a lot of, you know, those big blue chip companies that, you know, the match was in the company stock. And so right. they have very low basis, but the stock appreciated over 30 years and they never sold it. Or maybe their full 401k is full of that stock. Where we've done that transaction quite a bit is to move the stock into a brokerage account and they're subject to capital gains rate versus ordinary income if they kept it in the retirement account. So that could go away back to our Roth IRA contributions we've talked about, you know, so that's taking a non-deductible IRA contribution and then converting it into a Roth to avoid... Um, it, it's just if your income limits are higher than the contribution limits. So there's, you know, kind of a backdoor way to, to, to put the money in, um, you know, maximizing the amount that you can actually have in a retirement account. Is, yeah, just uh, we get to a certain point and then yeah, no more. Right. You, right? You've accumulated a couple million bucks in your retirement account. No, no. No, you, you can no longer contribute to that account. Uh, there's a lot of talk about um, you know eliminating the tax deduction entirely for retirement accounts and making everything after-tax contributions um, because of the billions of dollars, I guess, that the IRS looks at and says, all right, well, this is missed revenue. But they're missing the boat. I mean, I don't think with any of these strategies, I, it helps the retiree. 
You know what I mean? There's other areas to go after. When you look at the average balance of a retirement account, you know, hundred thousand bucks, let's say. Right. Right. Um, the median is a lot less than that. So half of the population has pennies. A third of the population has zero. And then, all right, well, let's go after you know just deductibilities or contributions. I don't know. I, I guess that would that wouldn't necessarily um, hurt lower income because they should probably go after tax anyway. The stretch IRA is another big one that potentially could leave us. Let me kind of set the stage, which is when you inherit an IRA from someone other than your spouse. So it's uh, so this is a non-spousal IRA. So maybe this is your mom or dad. You inherit the IRA. Then uh, what happens uh, is you need to set it up, specifically set it up uh, as a as titling correctly. Uh, and you actually want to talk to your custodian on, on changing the title. And here's how you're supposed to do it. This is John Smith, uh, who got an IRA from Laura Jackson. Or, I, I'm sorry, other way around. <laughs> anyway, John Smith, deceased, March 14th, 2016, IRA for the benefit of Laura Jackson. So you put the deceased person's name, the date that they passed away, that it's an IRA for the benefit of yourself. That's how you properly title uh, what's called a stretch IRA. And then you have to start taking required minimum distributions. And those required minimum distributions need to start by December 31st of the year after the, the person that passed away. So if, if someone passes away this year, you inherit that non-spousal IRA, you got to start, start taking required minimum distributions by December 31st of next year based upon your age, generally, although there are some 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 caveats there, but you do it based upon your age. So if you're 20 years old, and if the table says you're supposed to live till 80, that means there's 60 years to go. You take the IRA balance, you divide it by 60, and that's what you need to withdraw. It doesn't matter what age. In fact, a lot of people don't realize they're younger than 59 and a half, but they still have to take that required distribution. Yeah, all non-spouse beneficiaries have to take money out of the retirement account. They want to recycle that money. They don't want to sit it in the account so it can continue to defer for an another 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So all non-spouses need to take a required distribution based on their life expectancy. But the problem is, is that the titling has to change where sometimes you would think it's like, well, it's a retirement account. Well, all right, well, should I roll it into my own retirement account? Because I can take the brokerage account and move it into my own brokerage account. Yeah, that's a common conception that you ought to be able to do that. Right. But a retirement account needs to stay in the deceased's name. Um, so if you ever are, you know, if your parents have retirement accounts and you are inheriting those, just understand that be careful with those accounts because once you blow that thing up, it's very, very difficult to, to put Humpty Dumpty together again. You know, it's the, once that egg is cracked, it, it's done and it's fully taxable and it could really blow you up. So be careful because Al and I have seen it so many times where the titling wasn't done correctly. Maybe a trust was named as the beneficiary. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, what do I do if the trust is the beneficiary? And then now there's multiple beneficiaries, but there was a charity involved or a spouse was, you know, but with spouses specifically, do not name the trust, the, the, the primary name, your spouse, the primary, unless you don't want the money to go to the spouse and she or he signs off on it. Right. (laughs) You know what I mean? Which they do. 
you have to sign off yes, on it. Yes, <laughs> it's because it gets a little bit fuzzy. You want to make sure because the beneficiary form is one of the most important documents in regards to estate planning because that trumps all other estate planning documents. So if you have a living trust, but you don't fill out the beneficiary form, then it goes to the estate. It could be stuck in probate, but you have the trust, but you didn't name. So just there's all sorts of things that you absolutely want to make sure that you nail down. Well, you do, Joe, and you talked about a, naming the a trust. Let's say you 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 and your spouse have passed away. You've named the trust as the benef- as the secondary beneficiary. So then it's like four kids split the trust four ways, except one percent first goes to charity. So you have a non-person beneficiary, which means you cannot do a stretch. Uh, as a matter of fact, in that case, the the entire IRA needs to be distributed within five years. So with proposed tax reform, the 1031 exchange and the stretch IRA could both be on the chopping block. To find out what else is being considered, visit the white paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and download the white paper called Tax Reform, Trump versus House GOP. Find out how income tax, estate tax, and business tax may change and whether your tax strategies are at risk. Since you're already at the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com, download the free estate plan organizer. It'll help make it easier for your beneficiaries spouse, non-spouse, or otherwise, to carry out your wishes upon your departure. Find all the relevant information, fill out the forms completely, keep them up to date, and store them in a safe, easily accessible place for your heirs. Articles, webinars, must-watch videos, and white papers on tax reform and estate planning. It's all available to you for free in the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Alan, we got our good friend Paul Merriman back on the show. We do, and I am so excited because, I mean, we've got, I'd say, our short list of people we really enjoy uh, talking to. Paul's right at the top. Why are you kissing ass? Because I do that every week. (laughs) (laughs) So so the guests will be nice to us. (laughs) Well, Paul Merriman's been a legend in our business for many, many years. It's always a great pleasure to talk to Paul. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, gentlemen. It's great to be with you. You know, I read this study, and I know that you've read it. What do you think about this? Study shows 96% of stocks don't meet treasuries in the long term. You know how that, just so people understand what that what that means, It 4% of the companies that have ever gone public since 1926 uh, 4% have virtually made all of the real, you know, that 10% we always talk about that the market makes. Turns out it's that very small number of companies that are helping that happen. If you take all the rest of the companies, the 96%, and you look at the average return of that group, it's the same as T-bill rates. So uh, the, the thing it teaches us and I had uh, lunch with the professor who who did that, worked on that paper, uh, just to confirm. It teaches us that if we own all of the companies, rather than hiring somebody who's trying to find the next Microsoft, and remember Microsoft has been a dog since about 2000, if you want to look at the, the expectations, but if you if you think that you're going to find those people, that's, those great companies, that's fine. But it looks like almost, almost... Nobody does, and in fact, you'd be better owning all the companies rather than any part of them. And that, I think, is magic for people who don't want to take much risk. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I thought it was, I knew it was a small percentage that drives most of the returns, but I didn't know it was that low. 4%, that just seems crazy to me. And that's tricky, by the way, because that includes one of the most profitable 
companies ever was General Motors. So in that study, a lot of that return came from General Motors. Well, you know the old saw that the idea is you buy and hold an individual stock for the rest of your life, and the longer you own it, the more you're likely to make. It actually turns out that the longer you own it, the higher the probability that you're not going to make much money. Look at Sears. Right. Yep. Kodak. And this is such a reason to own the whole market. Yeah, but but Paul, don't you think some people out there try to profess they can pick that four percent? So you should invest with them. Well, those are the people who keep buying lottery tickets. I suspect. <laughs> right. But 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 the bottom line is. There is no evidence, there is no evidence that we can find in the academic research that somebody knows how to pick those stocks before they become famous. And in fact, there was one study many years ago that Morningstar did that they looked at successful mutual funds thinking they probably did something that maybe they overloaded their their position with some company that made them famous uh, and made them outperform the market. It turned out that these big performers that these funds had that made them famous were not their best picks. They were also ran stocks that they put into the portfolio because they had to have a lot of diversification. So not even the big winners, turns out, really knew what they were doing. Well, I think everyone has this backwards when it comes to investing. It's They should be investing for their goals, right? So what target rate of return do they need to generate to do all the things that they want to do? But uh, that, that greed factor comes in where they want to get a little bit more return and then they start doing things that are you know, probably is not going to get them the return that they, 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 they want or anticipate by picking individual stocks or trying to time the markets. And right now, I mean, there's we hear markets all-time highs, all-time highs. Is this a good time to, you know, maybe take some chips off the table? What do I do? How do I invest in all-time high markets? I mean, what, what, what advice would you give our listeners with that? Well, if you're going to try to pick that point, this is what is called market timing. And I've yet to find anybody in this industry, except for people who make a living doing market timing, but except for people who have that bias, almost everybody, in fact, all the very famous investors, the Warren Buffetts, the Peter Lynch's, the uh, Templeton's, these people all claim not to have any idea how to time the market and believed that it's all about the long term. Now, Having said that, these are very wealthy people who can afford to sit around and watch their portfolio go down 50% and 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 wait for it to come back. And a lot of people don't have that kind of that kind of luxury. But those people have got to be smart and have a significant amount of their money in something that's going to protect them against the downside, not a market timing system, but instead the appropriate amount of fixed income that's going to protect them to be whatever their risk tolerance is so they can get that benchmark return. And the benchmark return, you're right, is what rate of return do you need to get where you're trying to go? It has nothing to do with anybody else in the world but you. Yeah, I, I think that's well said. And what and what about that? What about stocks and bonds, and how should people go about figuring out how much stocks versus bonds? Well, I have a table that I, that in fact, I've got a number of them now that people can go to paulmerriman.com and, and look under best advice, and there's a fine-tuning table there. 
And what I do in that table is I show different combinations of stocks and bonds. And here's what I find so interesting, is every time you add another 10% equities to the bond portion of the portfolio, you add about a half to six-tenths of 1% to the return. And, of course, along with that, and I've got it on the table, is how much more money you're going to lose in the worst of times. I'm 73. I'm 50-50 stocks and bonds. That means I am expecting to lose 20 to 25% of my portfolio in the next big bear market. I've signed on for that. My wife has signed on for that. And if I'm not willing to accept that risk, maybe I should be 40% equities or 30% equities. But if I'm going to wish something is going to happen, that's a meaningless exercise because wishing doesn't do anything. And you, you guys know as well as I do that all we have to go on is the past and what the past looks like. And sometimes it's really bad. And we got to be prepared for it. Yeah. Well, you know it's going to be bad in the future. It, we just don't know when. And so I, I like how you said that. It's like, all right, well, here, I'm willing to lose X amount of dollars. I signed off on it. I'm anticipating this. Uh, my wife signed off on it. So when it happens, it's expected versus being shocked and like, oh, my God, I can't believe my portfolio did this. And I think that's another issue um, of most investors where they're they're confused maybe of what maybe what type of bonds that they actually hold. Are they long-term? Are they short-term? Are they high-grade? Are they junk? Or what type of stocks do they own? I mean, is it all large growth? Do they have international emerging markets? And they might not understand how those react in certain market you know, scenarios. Um, and then basically, it's, and then it all boils down to their goals again. You know, how much income needs to be derived from the overall portfolio? Well, I think that if we can get, and when I, I, as you guys know, I'm retired. I don't do investment advice anymore one-on-one. But when I did, I sat with every prospect, and I said, okay, I'm going to go through a series of forks in the road because you're either going to make these decisions by design or by default. I think by design is better than by default. And I make them, like you say, do you want to be all in large-cap growth companies? Oh, let me show you a 10-year period where long large-cap growth companies absolutely stink. And if that's all you had in your portfolio, that you probably would have been lost half of your money if you were living on it uh, during that 10-year period. Maybe you would have lost more than half. Now, how would how would you feel if you added some large-cap value to go along with that. Let's see what happens there so we can make good choices. Because if you don't ask people to think about more than one thing at a time, they make great decisions. It is when they are expected to make 20 decisions at one time that their brain doesn't know how to do that. And they don't know It seems pretty simple when you look at it from our side, but they don't know how to go through those 20 decisions to figure out how to to make a legitimate bottom line decision about what's right for them and their family. And by the way, you guys are in the business now. I think it's the toughest thing in the business is you're sitting with a husband and a wife or a couple. One is aggressive and one is conservative, and you're trying to go through that, that decision tree. It's tough because you're trying to give two very different people 
to come up with one answer. <laughs> That's true. So have you made those 20 decisions that Paul Merriman just mentioned? What are your retirement goals and is your retirement strategy designed to meet them? Can your portfolio withstand a stress test? Visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com and sign up for a free financial assessment with a certified financial planner. Find out if you're on track for retirement. How much money will you need? What social security strategies are available to you? How much income can you get from your portfolio? Make sure that that retirement strategy is aligned with your retirement goals. Sign up for a free two-meeting assessment with a certified financial planner at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Welcome back to the program. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson here, certified financial planner, alongside Alan Klopine. Uh, we're talking to Paul Merriman. Hey, Paul, well, let's let's break things down simply, because I think we talk about uh, large companies, growth companies, value companies, small. J- just give us a rundown. What is a growth company? What is a value company? You know, you know so people understand it, it, what they're invested in, or maybe they should venture into another asset class maybe that they haven't invested in or, or don't know anything about. Well, growth companies are the ones most people know because they are successful. Uh, they typically are in an industry that is considered to be a, a good growth industry for the future, uh, and they typically have access to money to grow, and they typically have good management. And there's, a, there's a number of keys that can put a company on top, and we can think of, of Facebook, we could think of Google, we could think of Amazon. Now, value tend to be companies that aren't as as popular today as they may have been at one time. They could be great companies, but they're let's call them out of favor for some reason, or just not the cutting edge companies. And that might be that might be Exxon, or that could be AT and T. It could be the Bank of America. It could be any number of decent companies, but they're just not the powerhouses of today. And what is, I still think this is fascinating, is that our hearts want to believe that those great companies like Google and Facebook, that that's where the big money is going to be made, and that in these more doggy, out-of-favor companies, that they're not likely to do as well, and why wouldn't we want to be where the action is? And the academics just turned this whole industry upside down when they did all the research, and then were able to put it on the table. There it is, those out-of-favor companies. Not only do they tend to be less volatile in normal times, but they give over the long term a higher rate of return. And people say, well, how could it be that a company that's out of favor and not as good as another company would make a higher rate of return? And it turns out, at least what the academics tell us, that this is simply a matter that these investments are, in fact, more risky. And it's important for investors to understand they are more risky because those companies in a catastrophic environment, I'm talking depression now, not just a recession, those out-of-favor companies tend to, to, to pile up bigger losses than those better-positioned growth companies. So there is a condition under which those value companies don't do as well. But if you look at all the years going back the last 90 years, in most of the years when the market is up, turns out it's the value companies, not the growth companies, that produce the bigger returns. 
Um, what is the delta on that with your latest research of um, overperformance of value companies versus growth? Well, it kind of depends on how far back you, you, you want to go. Let's go 90 but, years. Pardon? 90 years. 90 years? I think it's about 2% advantage to value. Oh, but it gets better. <laughs> I, I did an article about how to turn $3,000 into $50 million, oh. And uh, <laughs> this is for a newborn child. And all you do is put that money into small cap value, not not big cap, not large companies, but put that money into small cap value and just, in essence, let it sit there in a Roth IRA when the kid is old enough and working and can you can actually match this $3,000 or whatever it's grown to. Believe it or not, you literally, between what you take out and what you leave to your heirs, you could turn that $3,000 into, into $50 million, but... That would be making a lot less than small cap value has in the past because small cap value has produced about 5% a year more than the S&P 500. Yeah, you know, if you look at a growth of a dollar, and um, I use this quite a bit, is that most people's portfolios, they buy what they know or, you know, hey, I'm, all we hear is the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones. And so they, they use that as a benchmark. And, you know, we believe that it's very difficult to time the market, almost impossible, but it, it, it is probable um, that it could happen, right? Um, or picking the right stock. But we also want to make sure that we're beating the market. I mean, I'm not afraid to say it. It's like, I want to beat the market. But then you look at, well, what market are you trying to beat? Well, if you want to compare it to the S&P 500, yeah, small value will crush it. Because if you got a dollar, or let's say you have $100 invested in 1927, today it would be worth, what, about $600,000. You got that same hundred grand or $100 invested in small value stocks, it's going to be like $7.8 million. I mean, it's, it's $7 million more. So when you look at constructing portfolios, and I think you do a really good job of educating with this, it's like, all right, well, here, we want to dampen the volatility of the portfolio by maybe having a little bit more fixed income in the portfolio, more bonds, safe, you know, high grade, short duration. But with the stock selection that you're using, make sure that you understand risk and expected return and use the right asset classes to kind of boost your return over the long term. I think it's genius. Well, and it came right out of the academic community, this whole idea of uh, the, the, the advantage of small cap and value and the advantage of combining asset classes. And for those people who don't want to take more risk, here's the beauty. You can build the equity part of your portfolio with about 70% equity and about 30% bonds and have the same return as the S&P 500 without any bonds. Right. And so if you can get the same unit of return and, and, and take less risk, you're supposed to do that. Now, having said that, and having been on a diet since the fifth grade, I know what I was supposed to have eaten, and I never did. But had I eaten what I was supposed to, I'd probably live another 20 years. As it, as it is, I'm going to pay the price for having done what my my heart wanted instead of my head. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point, which is patience and doing the right thing, because sometimes this value premium, does it's not there for a year or two or even five years. Sometimes growth stocks are better than small value over a five-year period, six-year period, and you have to have enough patience to, to know that this strategy works, but it may not be every year. Here's a number you'll love. If you look at the return of the S&P 500 versus small cap value going back 50 years. 
the average difference in return is 17%. That's huge. I mean, if, if you expect your portfolio to look like the S&P 500, if you happen to be more value-oriented, your, your portfolio is going to return substantially different returns. And guess where the big difference comes? It's not on the downside. It's on the upside. But that difference... I don't mean to suggest that small cap value makes 17% more because sometimes the S&P 500 does better. Right. But they're very different asset classes in terms of how their prices act. Paul, where can um, people find this research and where can um, people get more information? Um, You you have great stuff out there. You have awesome books, literature, blogs, videos. Where where, where can they find you? Well, paulmerriman.com. I have absolutely nothing to sell, no advertising. This is the work of a foundation that I set up after I sold my investment advisory firm back in 2012. So it's it's all it's there for is to give people more information. And it doesn't hurt, even if you got an advisor, It doesn't hurt to read this stuff to make sure your advisor's got his or her head on straight. (laughs) Yeah, I think Joe and I need to read read it more. (laughs) Uh, Paul, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, Life's good. Retirement's good. I tell you, I'm just having a ball and... yeah, I'm, I, I was only going to work till I was 85 on this stuff, <laughs> right. but I went back and spent an hour and a half with John Bogle back in Pennsylvania in his office. I'm now going all the way. If I could make it, I'm gonna I'm gonna work longer than Jack Bogle worked. Good, good He's for 88. you. <laughs> That's great. So uh, we'll be interviewing guys. We'll be inter- interviewing you for the next 25 years. It sounds. God, like. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's Paul Merriman, folks. We got to take a break. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Your Money, Your Wealth isn't just a podcast. It's also a TV show. Check out Your Money, Your Wealth on YouTube to watch brand new shows on banking on your house in retirement with reverse mortgages, creating income streams in retirement, and the A's, B's, C's, and D's of Medicare, including Medicare mistakes. I wonder how many mistakes we just made in the show. (laughs) I mean, seriously. I don't even know what B means. Is that hospitalization? That's why we got this guy right here, Jason Thomas. Don't miss the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show. Just search YouTube for Pure Financial Advisors and Your Money, Your Wealth. And check back often. We're always adding new shows. Time now for Big Al's List. Every week, Big Al Clopine scours the media to find the best tips, do's and don'ts, mistakes, myths, and advice to improve your overall financial picture. In handy bullet point format. This week, the top 10 best and worst places to retire. What What is this gauge well, on? Is it so weather? Is it, well, is it crime? I'll, I'll leave it. Well, first of all, it's the 150 largest cities. So this isn't all cities. It's just the 150 largest. And out of the 150, here's the top 10? Yeah, here's the top 10. And it's basically ranked on things like retire friendliness, uh, availability of healthcare facilities, recreational activities like golf, museums, and wait for it, bingo. (laughs) That's a a big one, apparently, on this list. Uh, In-home service, overall cost of living. Number one place to live, Orlando, Florida. Number one? Number one. Orlando, Florida. I've lived in Oviedo, Florida. Oviedo. Yeah. That's right outside of Orlando. 
Right. And um, now there's a lot of theme parks in Orlando, so plenty to do, I suppose. Yes, I used to lived in Oviedo. Um, I went to University of Florida, which is in Gainesville. Right. But a, a buddy of mine from high school was going to University of Central Florida, which is in Oviedo. Okay. Which is outside of Orlando. There you go. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to University of Central Florida. Right. But I lived there for a year to get in-state residency. Oh, you did? Because it was cheaper? Or, well, out-of-state residence yeah, I know. tuition uh, well, no, versus... I, right. I'm saying cheaper than Gainesville. Or because or, you had a friend there. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, got it. Got yeah. it. Okay. And so, and then I was close to Orlando, right? Which is a, a bigger city than Gainesville is a college. Yeah, town. and you went what Disneyland, got a no, annual pass, no, and no. SeaWorld, and I worked at a bar. It was in Church Street Station. It was yeah. called Howl at the Moon Saloon. Really? Yep. It was a dual piano bar. Oh, I love those. It's like the Shout House. Yes, yeah, yeah. I love that place. Yeah, I worked there at night. I also worked at Structure, which is a, I think it's a defunct clothing store. Okay. And that was the worst experience of my life. What did you do there? I Sell clothes? S- yeah, sold clothes. Oh, I can't, I can't it, imagine. It was, I, I was on the floor. Was it suits or No, or it was like, you know, like, you know, Someone khakis and co- shirts. Some lady comes in. I like some underwear. No, no, no. It. it was for it was men's clothing. Men's clothing. Okay. I, it's like a banana republic. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. Familiar? Sure, yeah, yeah. But all right, so I was on the floor. I made it, I think, like two weeks, and two I couldn't weeks. do it. Yeah. Because I'd be like, oh, this vest would look really good with those pants. <laughs> you know, oh, look at this. Oh, you need a mock turtleneck or whatever. It was. So I can imagine that. So I was like, I can't do this. Right. So then I worked in the back. I, I just stocked. Okay. Um, you just carried boxes. Yeah. I, carried, yeah, yeah. I want to do and man open. stuff. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't want to be the guy in front. And, yeah. And I would have to dress up in all this like structure stuff. So it was right. like sweaters and things like that. But it's, it's Orlando. 100 degrees. It's 100 yeah. degrees. And yeah. I'm sweating. <laughs> And it was like, I had to wear like maroon collared shirts with like a, a sweater over do you, it. Do you have any pictures of those things? The, the, no, that was, I, I'm trying should to, go, should I, go on I'm, our website. I'm trying to purge this. <laughs> All these years later, yeah. still there. And then I worked at a country club. So here was my schedule. I would get up at four o'clock in the morning and I'd work at Econa Country Club, right? Okay. And so it was a nice golf club. It was yeah. close to my house, and I was... Now, that's um, a manly job. That, oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that you felt you had pride in. Yes. So I'd whip the greens, clean yeah. the greens off after yeah. they mowed them, and then yeah, I would right. you know, do the sand traps and things sure. like that. Yeah. So that was from 4.30 until probably like 10, 10.30 okay. in the morning. Okay. Right? And then from there, I'd go home. Yeah, and then I would change into my structure tur- outfit, <laughs> my turtlenecks <laughs> in the middle middle of the day, <laughs> and then I would drive an hour to Orlando yeah. with this. I had a nineteen like eighty four Honda Accord with yeah. no air conditioning. Oh boy! And so by the time I got to structure, you're dripping. I am drenched with sweat. <laughs> so then I would have to buy a new shirt once I got there. So everything that I earned from structure, I went, went right back into structure to buy their stupid clothes. And then after you wore it once, you had to throw it away because pretty of all much, the sweat. pretty much. Yeah. And then from there, I went to the bar, and I was like a, kind of a bouncer slash, you know, guy. If you wanted a song that the p- piano guy sang, yeah, yeah, you would give that little ticket to me. Oh, that's what you. And did. then I would go up and put it in Got the it. dish and say, "Oh yeah." Got it. She's giving you five bucks. Yep, yep, yep. Play yep. a little Billy Joel. Got to work up to waiter. <laughs> work, oh, yeah. Work, work, work at that level yet. Yeah. So I did that for a year. Wow. And um, I got well, my residency and I said, get me the hell out of Oviedo. And so, so I moved to Gainesville. So the second one is right down the road, Tampa. Oh. So if you had to pick Orlando or Tampa, what would you pick? Tampa. Why? 
uh, because it, like on, there's Clearwater Beach. Yeah, it's on the nice. coast. It's, yeah, it, it's on the uh, the west coast, the Gulf it's on side. The Gulf side. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Orlando's right in the middle. It's so touristy, and yeah. I've never been to Disneyland or yeah. World or whatever's there. And, you didn't do that. No. Living there a year. Uh. Uh-uh. Yeah. No, I went to like Universal Studios once with this girl. That was fun. But um, right. I yeah. I, I I like Tampa, Clearwater Beach. That's nice. Okay. All right. So you pick Tampa over Orlando. Number three is also down the road on the other side, Miami. Yeah, Miami's fun. Yeah, Miami's cool. I could live there. Yeah, Except I don't know in, if in I the, could live in there. In the summer, it would be pretty rough. Dude, it's little nuts. It's You think? Oh, I would never live in Miami. I, I, I only went there once. It was in August, which is not the time to go. But we went on a cruise to save money because in August, they're really cheap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and we were there like two or three days beforehand. And I went on a jog. They got that boardwalk. I went on a jog and I got what, whatever distance I, and then I was going to turn around. And so I got kind of, I don't know, mile mile and a half in whatever I did I, and I realized first of all I'm not going to make it back and secondly I actually might die on this hike <laughs> so I ran into a hotel all sweaty and sat there for like a half an hour Yeah. and then uh, Ann called me where are you? Well, I'm I'm at the Marriott. <laughs> what are you doing there? <laughs> well, I almost died on this jog. Now, I, I can never live in uh, Miami's fun for like a, a weekend. Number four is Scottsdale, Arizona. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Scottsdale. I was just in You're Scottsdale. Not? Yeah, recently I like, I like too. Scottsdale. Yeah. I mean, not in the summer. Again, same problem. Yeah, it's too hot. hot. Haiti. But the rest of the year is pretty good. Lots of good golf. Golf, golf. golf courses are great. That that to me, I love that the green grass against the stark desert. I think that's a cool look. Yeah, it is. But uh, you still wouldn't pick that one. Yeah. Number five is yet another place you've lived, Atlanta. Atlanta, hot Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. I lived in the, the Darlington when I lived in Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah, okay. Because right, you graduate from the University of Florida, and d- is this all the places that I've been to? What the hell is going on it here? Is. They, I just I love living with retirees. <laughs> <laughs> That's I mean, uh, what no, is, no wonder is, you like to help retirees. No wonder why I'm in the profession. Yeah. I just love hanging out with the retirees. Yeah. Oh, Atlanta. That was my um, yeah. I, I thought I was going to make it big in Atlanta because that's the New York of the South. Right. And my girlfriend at the time, she was from Daytona Beach, Florida. Okay. And she wanted to stay south, close to the family. And I said, well, let's go to Atlanta. She's like, sure. Oh, I lived in like low-income housing. Right. It was awful. <laughs> Five cops got shot in my... Really? Like in the in the yeah the day I left wow. it was craziness. Oh. It was right across the street from the Piedmont you, Hospital, you right just, on Peach Street Avenue. You got out just in time, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And so my brother came. All I had was, you know, uh, I didn't have a bed. I slept in my suit garment bag because right. I only had one suit, one shirt, yeah. and some crappy shoes and a belt. Right. Yeah. And so that was my work attire every single day. And I lived in low income housing in Hotlanta, right, in the Darlington. And so I had some stuff. My brother and I jo- and I drove a, a Jeep Wrangler back then, right? No top. Right. Really cool. Oh, that's cool. So I drove the Jeep Wrangler from Atlanta back to Minnesota right. with my brother. Okay. And so I have this little cart full of all of my belongings. Sure. So it was in like a bag. Okay. <laughs> and so I'm going down the freight elevator. And then this one guy goes, yeah, man, congratulations. I go, what? He's like, you graduated the Darlington. Good for you for getting out. You're of out. You're one of the few that yeah, made it you're out. One of the few that made it out. It was like a jail cell. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, all right. What's next on the list? Well, we got Salt Lake City. Nope, never been. Yeah, I've been. I haven't. I haven't lived there. Honolulu. Oh, that's a cool place. Yeah. Yeah. Now there's a million other places in Hawaii I'd rather live, but I love Hawaii. And number eight is Denver. I actually could live in Denver. I, yeah. I like Denver. I like Colorado. Yeah, I like John Denver. You, you do. Yes. <laughs> Well, I, I do too. I, 
I wouldn't have guessed you would like John Denver. Love John Denver. Okay. Yeah, yeah no, me too. Nine is Austin, Texas. Ooh, I like Austin. You've been? I have. I have not. I keep hearing it's the place to be in Texas. And then right. number 10 is Las Vegas. And it turns out, actually, a lot of retirees like Las Vegas because when you live in the suburbs... What, you it's, just it's, smoke cigarettes and gamble your no, Social Security check away. It's, it's, <laughs> see, Vegas is a regular town in the suburbs. And then when you want that craziness... Once every other week, you can go have dinner and you know throw a couple of bets down. But I think the retirees, they what I've heard is they hardly ever go to the strip. That's what you and I do when we go there. Anyway, that's my list. Ah, huh, very interesting. Well, I, I learned a lot about myself with yeah, your list today. Yeah, half the half the first half are all places you know intimately. Because <laughs> they actually have residents. All right. You want to hear the ten worst? We'll, we'll do this quickly. But I'm sure you're curious. I am very curious. Because uh, I'll get to the worst one at the end. Number 141 is Rancho Cucamonga. Oh, really? In California. Number one, that's the worst? Or no, that's well, number no, 10? That's 141. Oh. We're going to 150. Okay. Right? And then, actually, the first five are in California. <laughs> so here we go. Fontana, 142. Modesto, 143. That's <laughs> Central Valley. Stockton, also Ooh. Central Valley. Awful. 144. Fresno, 145. <laughs> That's where my uncle lives. That's oh. where he retired. What? Well, can't be all bad. Number four, 146 is Detroit. Ooh, the D. Yeah. Didn't, it usually scores low on these kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. Number 147 is uh, War, Worcester, Massachusetts. Worcester. Yeah. Okay. Number 148 is a place where my uncle spent his entire career teaching San Bernardino. Okay. Now he lives in Redlands. He's not a San Bernardino. He lives. He's he's a Redlands guy. But um, anyway, um, then we've got uh, number one forty nine, Providence, Rhode Island. Island? Huh. Yeah. Any guess on one fifty? The worst place, according to this study, NerdWallet.com. The worst place to retire? It's on the East Coast. East Coast worst yeah. place to retire ever. I don't know. <laughs> New York City. <laughs> That didn't make the top 10 or the bottom 10, but it's in New Jersey. Newark, New Jersey. Oh, why? I don't know. It doesn't say. Hmm. Well, actually, let's see what it does say. It says uh, partly because taxes, higher cost of living, and lesser quality of life. So clearly they don't have enough bingo. I guess to, so. To go I would imagine. I mean, New York is pretty expensive. New York City? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why it didn't make the top 10. It's because it's too expensive. What, it's and that's, so... that's why San Diego didn't make it either. What is San Diego? I don't know. I didn't get the list. Oh. All I have is... Oh, your top and bottom? That's all I got in got this it. article, so I don't know. So our crack research team just kind of we, uh, did an abbreviated version there. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I found that list, and I can tell you that San Diego is the 37th best place to retire. Must be all the bingo halls we've got. You can find that full list, too. It's in the show notes for today's podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. While you're there, check out the white papers, articles, webinars, and over 400 video clips on tax planning, investing, retirement planning, small business strategies, estate planning, Social Security, and our new Medicare video series, and more. It's all waiting for you all free at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. If you need more help, you can always email us at info at purefinancial.com or pick up the phone and call 888-99-GOALS. That's 888-994-6257. Oh, we got Jason Thomas. See, we're we're the, trying to get, so catch, here's the catch news, him by surprise. This is the new segment called Catch Jason Thomas by Surprise. <laughs> 
There's no surprise at all in this, Jason Thomas. How are you, sir? Well, except he he doesn't know what we're going to ask him. Oh, that's a surprise. Well, I, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Jason, tell our listeners who the heck you are. I am the uh, education uh, specialist at Pure. I do some of the some of the videos and teach some of the classes that we have, and uh, I'm up in the LA area. Are, are you? Do you have any credentials that we should be aware of? Oh yeah, I'm a CFP or a certified financial planner, and I've uh, been in the industry about ten years, and used to teach in uh, in programs for people that wanted to get that uh, designation as well. So you taught advisors how to be advisors, is what you're saying? I we'll we'll see if if that actually ended up happening. But yeah, I've, uh, some of those people have kind of stayed in touch with me as they've kind of gone al- along through the industry. But uh, but yeah, I started one of those programs at the University of Redlands about four years ago and uh, was pretty interesting. Well, since Deb ruined our segment, <laughs> surprise! I am going to just so off, off the cuff, off the cuff question okay. for right. you because I like the element of surprise with this. Yes. With the phone ringing, yeah, and then and we, they, they we don't even know if and then he's going to be like, "Who the hell's this?" <laughs> and they'll be like, "Hey, <laughs> Jason, you're live on radio." So, so uh, what videos are you doing now? Do, are we? Uh, did we get to college funding? Yeah, that one's. Uh, we're in the middle uh, middle of that one now. All right, let's talk about it. What are some ways that people can fund their children's education? Go. <laughs> Well, first is start thinking as soon as possible, and uh, some of the common plans are 529 plans or college savings plans. Uh, You have the option to use your own retirement account if you'd like and take withdrawals for a child, but that's kind of a dicey one because you want to make sure that you're still in shape for your own uh, retirement if you do something like that. A lot of people uh, like savings bonds also. It's not as uh, likely to get a huge rate of return, but, you know, it's fixed, and uh, you will avoid taxes on the interest if it's used for education later on. Um, on the call of savings plans, which are probably the most popular option, those 529s, uh, whatever growth occurs, you would also uh, not be taxed uh, later on if they're used for education expenses. So, What are the pros and cons of 529 plans? Because there's a lot of talk of, all right, well, here, you should fund a 529 plan for your kid's education. Why wouldn't I want to fund a 529 plan? You, There are some disadvantages. For example, um, if the state that you live in doesn't give you any benefit for doing it, then you would have a less advantageous situation than people in other states. Like California doesn't give you a tax incentive to do it while some states do. But the upside of that is that you can just buy a plan from any state and choose whichever one has the investments that you prefer or the lower fees or something like that. There, there are limitations on how often you can mix the investments up inside the account, so they are a little more restrictive than what you would be able to do in, say, your own IRA, for example. So you really got to find one that you like it kind of as is rather than assuming that you're going to uh, tailor it to be your own, um, your own thing. What about prepaid tuition? That can be an option for a lot of people at state institutions, but not every state has a prepaid tuition for their state university network. Uh, so that's a, a state-by-state basis also, and it kind of restricts the um, the choices available later on. 
So um, that is a, uh, substantially less common and less popular than uh, doing a 529 plan. Basically, the advantage of doing that would be that you're locking in uh, today's rates versus tomorrow's. And we know college costs are increasing substantially more than inflation. So um, that would be the game plan, but you're limiting risk, and you may not have the option to do it anyway, depending on where you live. And right. so what, what happens in that plan if, you're, if your son or daughter doesn't actually go to college? There are some uh, refunding provisions, but it really depends on the, uh, the actual uh, state that you're going to, and you're probably not going to get as good of a deal on your refunding as what you would be if you were paying for uh, the actual increased tuition over time. And in addition to that, the um, you're on the spot, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not uh, not something that you really want to be uh, confined to doing anyway. That's money that you didn't put somewhere else. Is what but, I was going but, to kind but, of say. Just the opportunity. But, but, but you can't. Did you... A, did, are you at lunch or something? Did, it, did someone walk by? <laughs> was, you, was that a brain fart? What what happened there? <laughs> there, were, there was a very attractive individual that just kind of diverted my attention elsewhere to something a little more. <laughs> yes, besides, besides prepaid college tuition. All right, uh, here's here's my last question because right, this is this segment was supposed to be set up as let's call Jason on the spot where he doesn't know who's calling him. But here's what happened. Deb, our producer, called him and said, hey, Joe wants to talk to you and put you on the radio. And then so I'm sure you ran to your office and got all sorts of material where I wanted to see you at McDonald's. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, I'm going to I'm going to put that number in my phone to make sure that I'm not surprised uh, in the future, even if the the game is kind of improved. (laughs) Uh, We we can use other numbers. Yeah, we got lots of numbers numbers here, brother. All right. So, Jason, I am not married, and I do not have any prospects of of marriage at this point in my life. But let's say I, at one point, would like to get married and have a child. And I went to University of Florida. And can I call University of Florida right now and lock in some tuition for Junior, even though he is unborn, and I don't even know whose mother is yet. What do you think? I the short answer is I don't <laughs> think so because you would not. <laughs> they're they're going to say we we don't want that future gator. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. No, they they would be happy to have the future Anderson generation, but as far as the funding of that, the um. The it's it's a statewide system, so it's not necessarily a particular state university. So if Florida had one, which I'm not sure if they do or don't, it would be for the um, for the state overall's uh, state education system. So I would have to go to Florida State. Well, no, you could go to any state university. I think UF is is a state university in Florida, though, right? The University of Florida. It's not University of Florida State. Florida State is the enemy, Jason. <laughs> yeah, I know that. But, no, I've been to Gainesville. I've had I've had some fun there. I've uh, visited and had a good time at, at that campus. But so, uh, so, Joe, you you would have to craft a, a name for this future kid, like Joseph Junior. Joseph done. Anderson Junior. I was going to have a Jason Allen. <laughs> Anderson, but no, I think that's no, over. Now it's just Alan Anderson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Last but not least, uh, Mr. Thomas, what is the joke of the day? Oh my, the joke of the day. You might have you might have caught me again. All right, I'm gonna 
give you guys one about about a child. You just mentioned having a particular, uh, having a kid in the future. So guy rushes into the delivery room. He's angry, and he says, I can't believe this is the ugliest kid I've ever seen. You cheated on me. And she looks up and says, not this time. <laughs> Ooh, that's wow. deep. Jeez. Wow. This is heavy. I can't well, believe this is not my child. Look at how homely it is. You cheated on me. Not this time. Yep, nope, this is yours. <laughs> this is exactly yeah, how you look. Yeah, Billy <laughs> is not yours, by the way, sir. <laughs> Since you asked. Yeah, the good-looking ones. There's another yeah, dad. Yeah. All right, Jason. Have a wonderful weekend. Thanks for participating in Your Money, Your Wealth. You too. Thanks, guys. Keep an eye on yourmoneyyourwealth.com for more college funding information coming soon from Jason Thomas CFP. In the meantime, if you or someone you know is turning 65, it's time to start navigating the Medicare maze so you can choose the right plan for you at the right cost. The Understanding Medicare video series featuring certified financial planners Joe Anderson and Jason Thomas is available now free and on demand from the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. We're talking about the A's, B's, C's, and D's of Medicare. We're talking about 11 common Medicare mistakes to avoid. And we're talking about bridging the gap to Medicare today. And this presentation is for those retiring before the age of 65 that do not have retiree insurance benefits. Just visit the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to watch the Understanding Medicare video series free on demand. Now it's time to dip into the email bag with financial questions courtesy of Advisor Insights from Investopedia and you, the Your Money, Your Wealth listeners. Joe and Big Al are always willing to answer your money questions. Email info at purefinancial.com or send your questions directly to joe.anderson at purefinancial.com or alan.clopine at purefinancial.com. This uh, was written, um, actually not to us, uh, in full disclosure, it was written to USA Today. They didn't realize they could write it to Joe and Al, I guess. This is Charlie. said, I'm 55 and I plan on retiring in the next 10 years. Could you give me any tips on lowering my taxes in my retirement years? How would you, where would you go with that, Joe? Oh, well, your taxes don't stop when your paycheck does, Charlie. <laughs> in right. fact, you have more control over your taxes than any other point in your life. Yeah, and why is that? Because you control... <laughs> You control the distributions to some extent, right? And and that's a, you know, when you're working. So what control do you have over your salary? Well, you hopefully have a salary, and then you you <laughs> right in the first place, and then maybe your employer has a four hundred one k or a four hundred three b or something like that. And yeah, you, if you're an employee, you don't have much. Not not much you can do, right? You can decide if you have a four hundred one k. You can decide to put. Do I put any in, or I put up to eighteen thousand dollars in, or if I'm over fifty, I can add another six thousand to that. Twenty four thousand dollars. That's your choice, and that's it, right? Now, when you're retired, well, you know, at seventy and a half, you have to take your required minimum distribution out of your IRA. So that's a known. And whenever you sign up for Social Security, the youngest is age sixty-two. The oldest is age seventy. The longer you wait, by the way, the bigger the the payment's going to be. So in a lot of cases, it does pay to wait if you can afford it. But uh, so those things happen. If you have a pension, that comes to you. There's not much control there. But everything else. Right. Let's say you, you you're spending a hundred thousand dollars per year, and your social security is thirty thousand. Right. You don't have a pension, so you need seventy thousand dollars from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, you get to decide: Do I take that out of my IRA, my four hundred one k, maybe my non-retirement account? We call that non-qualified. My trust account. 
right? Or maybe my Roth IRA. I got money in a Roth IRA. You get to decide which ones that you pull from. And generally, you want to pull from, you want, you want to look, have, a, have a, a tax plan to figure out, gosh, if I pull it out, all out of the IRA, I'm in a really high tax bracket. So maybe some of it should come out of my Roth because that's tax-free. Maybe some of it comes out of my trust account because I know that's a lower rate that's a capital gains rate on the gains plus it's not even all fully taxable because some of that's principal right. you know return of capital to you and a lot of times we'll see people living in the hundred thousand dollar world or hundred fifty thousand dollar world but they're 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 in a very low tax bracket because of the tax planning they did you got to map it out first though <laughs> you do. Right? so you you can't do this all right now i'm retired where where do i go well you you want to make sure that you understand first of all the planning is a, you got to look a couple of years before you retire. I mean I suppose you can do it when you retire too, but it works a lot better to say all right well here's what I'm spending today here's what I would like to spend in retirement yeah maybe I want to increase that for the first five ten years maybe decrease it whatever map that thing out right how much is coming in how much are you spending how much are you going to need in savings and then from there as al said is all right let's say you need 70,000 40,000 then look at where's your assets right now write it down how much do you have in tax deferred accounts how much do you have in non retirement accounts and how much do you have in roth and i would guess that most of you have most of your money in tax deferred accounts unless you're a client of ours and then you probably have a lot in Roth. But you, then you have very little control over your taxes at that point. Because I don't think they realize, Al, is when you pull money from a retirement account, it's taxed exactly like your paycheck, except for there's no FICA tax. So you pull $100,000 out, it's like you earned a $100,000 salary. Yeah, same tax bracket. Yeah, yeah, it's the same, yeah. You, you got the same brackets on state and federal. And then in some cases, you have very little deductions to go against it, so you might even pay more in tax. Yeah, that's right, Joe. I got a, a little a quick example to sort of illustrate this. And this is a taxpayer living on 110000 of income. And let's just say $20,000 of qualified dividends uh, from their trust account. Social Security, $40,000. IRA distributions, 50000 You add that up, it's 110000 You look at federal taxes, it's about $9,000. That's the tax on that. And that's all taxed, um, well, not all, but most of it taxed at, at the highest ordinary income rates. Now, you take that same taxpayer, and instead of $50,000 in IRA distributions, it's half of that, 25000 in IRA distributions and $25,000 in Roth IRA distributions, you're still getting 110,000, but now your federal tax is $3,000. It's it's one third of the other. And then you're thinking, well, how could that be? Well, first of all, Roth IRA distributions, the 25,000 is tax free, but it gets better than that because because you have less income cuz Roth distributions don't count as income, about $10,000 less of your Social Security is taxable because of the way that that works. Oh, and by the way, about $5,000 more of your qualified dividends is tax-free as well because you stayed in the 15% tax bracket. So by just having a little change in how you set up your distribution plan, in this example, you cut your taxes by two-thirds. And this is what we're talking about. You imagine... 75% reduction in your tax bill. Yeah, six. 66 and two-thirds, actually. Wow. Close enough. 70%. <laughs> All right. But the point is, if you can do this over a 25, 30-year retirement... 
pretty than close. Whatever. It's gi- gigantic. Gi- ginormous? Ginormous. Is that a word? All right. That's it for us. For Big Al Clopine, I'm Joe Anderson. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. We'll see you again next week. Take care. So recapping today's ginormous show. Some of your real estate exchange and retirement savings options may be changing, so make sure to stay on top of the latest tax reform news at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. 529 plans, your own retirement money, and savings bonds are some ways to fund kids' education. Taxes don't stop when your paycheck does. You actually have more control over your taxes in retirement than at any other point in your life. And a visit to yourmoneyyourwealth.com for a free assessment with a certified financial planner can help put you on the right tax track. And Orlando, Atlanta, Scottsdale, and Miami may be great places to retire, but not if you're Joe Anderson. Special thanks to our guests today, Paul Merriman and Jason Thomas. Visit paulmerriman.com, that's P-A-U-L-M-E-R-R-I-M-A-N.com to read more from one of our favorite nationally recognized authorities on mutual funds, index investing, asset allocation, and both buy and hold and active management strategies. And don't forget to visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com to watch the new Understanding Medicare video series from two of our favorite certified financial planners, Jason Thomas and Joe Anderson. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com through your favorite podcatcher or on iTunes, where you can also check out our ratings and reviews. And remember, this show is all about you. If there's something you want to hear on Your Money, Your Wealth, email us, info at purefinancial.com. Listen next week for more Your Money, Your Wealth presented by Pure Financial Advisors. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Your Money, Your Wealth opening song Motown Gold by Carl James Pestka is licensed under a Creative Commons license.